Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting no harm. Be sorry, never saw the hand no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Flatten the heels. The coffee might get them, but the Lord never will. We're casting away The only way they know how yeah. With a little more mojo Than the Lord will allow Everybody and welcome to the show. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome on board the big red bus that we call the Mojo Radio Show. In fact, this week the big red bus goes on the water. It's ship ahoy, which is probably why. Why are you wearing that sailor's hat? Oh, it's my it's, it's my Gilligan's imitation hat. Don't you like it? The skipper looks like more like Thurston. <laughs> Thurston Howell the <III>. third. <laughs> My boy. (laughs) So welcome, everybody. What's this little shindig about? Well, we just find interesting people that we think have an opinion on something. They have their mojo working in some aspect of their life. We talk to them. We extract their, their thoughts, their tips, their tools on how we can take what they're doing so well and apply it to our own worlds or, in fact, be able to help somebody else, which I think in this day and age is such an important part of what the show was all about and what we as humans can do for each other. Ripping around the studio, uh, AP in the voiceover booth. Stellar job as usual, mate. Thank you, Bertie. Yes, feeling fighting fit today. Got me mojo going. And our lovely automated studio assistant. It's going to be from work. Bit, bit of work for you uh, later on, Lola. Got some things lined up for you, but welcome to the show, Lola. Hello, boys. All right, mate. Sounds like everybody's accounted for. Uh, yeah, roger that. Uh, I've got to report a death in the family over the weekend, mate. Uh, tomato plant? <laughs> no, the coffee machine. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, went to make one on Saturday morning and just didn't want to turn on. No, that's no. tragic. So um, so sip up, see what you think. Uh, see, coffee for me is either great, mm. good, mm. or bin. But this is good. That's good. Oh, okay. I'm surprised. Thank you to the boys at JB Hi-Fi who sorted me out with a new one at great expense to Voodoo Sound, but um, we're back in business. <laughs> Just a contra deal? Thank you, JB. No. How many times are you going to say JB Hi-Fi before no. you get it for free? I must say, unfortunately, no. <laughs> now, to start us off, I just want to do a rest in peace, a gone for not forgotten. 
Gone but not forgotten. One of my creative heroes died of recent times, one Karl Lagerfeld. Oh, really? Mm. Do you know who I'm talking to? Uh, I know the name, but you're going to have to remind me of what Karl Lagerfeld did because, yeah. Well, he was a creative genius and he was the creative force behind Chanel and he died at the age of 85. And he took over Chanel in, oh, gee, a couple of decades ago when Coco Chanel died and left the brand in a bit of a Chevy state. And he took over. And in 2017, it boasted, get this, an operating profit under his guidance of $2.7 billion. Wow. Nearly $10 billion in sales. It's almost close to voodoo sound. Yeah. Climbing over 10% annually. Yeah. Um, and the Chanel brand is now worth $50 billion. So wow. he, um, he was... An amazing creative. And two things that I, I remember seeing a documentary on him, and this is why I admired him a lot, is he had this saying, never compete, never compare. When Tommy Hilfiger, another fashion designer, asked Carl Lagerfeld to judge a photo exhibition, he said, this is really hard for me because I live by the motto, never compete, never compare. That was one lesson I've always taken into everything I do from Carl. And this other lesson that I loved was when he put out a show on the runway, the minute that show was over, he never looked or touched the collection again. And they called him the mercenary <laughs> because once he put a collection out, it was dead, it was gone, done. Wow. And he basically turned the page and start sketching for the next lot. And there is a uh, quote for the, stu- the voodoo studio wall here, mm. which uh, is directed specifically at you. Right. <laughs> Carl Lagerfeld said, sweatpants are a sign of defeat. <laughs> you lost control of your life, so you bought some sweatpants. Right. Yeah. Unless you play football. Or unless you play any sport, let's be honest. Come on. Negative, negative mate. Negative. Don't try and talk about this one. Negative. Carl, Carl would be rolling in his grave. Next, anyway. time, next time we speak to an Olympic gold medalist, I dare you to dig that quote out and throw it at them. <laughs> <laughs> so R.I.P. Carl Lagerfeld. The Mojo Radio Show. Captain Martha Legaria Cotite. How's that? That's a, such a cool name. That's a big name. Now, Captain Martha, as we've come to know her here in the show, is passionate about living a life to make a difference. And Martha shares heartfelt insights and her own personal stories from 29 years in the U.S. Coast Guard. Martha served for 10 years on active duty and went to sea a number of times. And what's really fascinating about Martha's story was she was the first woman to lead teams on missions aboard uh, vessels, let's call them vessels, in the Pacific Ocean as an executive officer and the only woman on board. Now, we're talking big 110-foot patrol boats in the Atlantic and the Caribbean. Now, (laughs) I think that in itself is an amazing Amazing feat for someone. Imagine stepping on board a boat like that as an executive officer at sea. Like there's no one around you. You're at sea. Today, Martha writes books. So she's a best-selling author and is a keynote speaker and talks about leadership and diversity, resilience, crisis management, as well as how do you overcome and face difficult challenges, particularly when you are in a remote environment like the Atlantic Ocean. So, Captain Martha, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you. I am so excited to be on your show and delighted that you invited me. 
Well, there's a first already, Gary. Someone excited <laughs> to be on the show. <laughs> can only go down. It can only go downhill from here. Well, it, it's it's interesting, Martha. I you've got such a fascinating background. There's a lot I want to dig into, and a very distinguished background. But today, when somebody meets you out and about, and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Well, because I recently retired from the United States Coast Guard, serving at sea and ashore for over 29 years. I'm in a bit of a transition, but what I like to say is now that I've started this new phase of life is that I'm a motivational and inspirational speaker, and my goal is to inspire others to achieve their bigger dream and give them some tips based on my experiences and people that I've met serving uh, across the nation and in the Coast Guard. Um, so that they can achieve what may seem at the moment impossible. If we just go back to the Coast Guard, at the Coast Guard Academy in 1985, the place where you started and then you celebrated your retirement at a big ceremony, you said, I met the heart of the Coast Guard. Just explain to us, in your mind, what is the heart of the Coast Guard? That's a great question. Uh, The heart of the Coast Guard, for me, when I first witnessed um, my first introduction to people that served, um, that's who showed me what kind of person um, puts service before self is probably the most basic way to understand it. And the heart of the Coast Guard that I was attracted to was people that were living a life and con- conducting missions that save lives, protected the environment, made a difference for others, and they were willing to do this, um, even to some extreme, like I've written about rescue swimmers, things that I couldn't imagine myself doing, so they're at a whole nother level than me, uh, saving their others' lives while putting their own at risk. What's it like in the Coast Guard? Like, What sort of work is a Coast Guard doing on a day-to-day basis? The majority of the work, what sort of stuff are you doing? Well, everyone has a different place in the Coast Guard. And because we are a small service about the same size as the New York Police Department, um, we get a lot of responsibility at a very junior rank. And we can change our assignments from at sea to at shore, operations or logistics, aviation or cuttermen and women. Um, so I, I can speak to my specific experiences and um, I served two tours afloat and they were very different tours from operations ashore where I was supporting those who were on cutters and we would send them out on missions at sea. I also served and chose to serve as a public affairs officer um, when at the time, you mentioned, you know, back in the early 80s, early 90s, Mm. most of the military in the U.S. did not appreciate the value of public relations, media relations. And now today you you can see that even a tweet um, can change change your day quite dramatically. Um, So it's become so important. And um, so those are just some examples. Um, we have some fabulous 
um, resources, including uh, our flagship national security cutter, which can extend further offshore than the smaller boats that you might see at a Coast Guard station, say one of your harbors along the Australian coast. You might have smaller boats that operate in and around there, and then larger medium or high endurance cutters that would extend the reach um, in support of the, the missions further offshore. And certainly we work with other um, militaries across the world. We have a lot of wonderful allies, and um, I didn't have the fortune of serving with any Australians, but I'm pretty certain that we that we do that. Um, and it's, it's quite an exciting adventure to be a part of it, and I feel very blessed to have been given the opportunities I have been given to serve as a Coast Guards Guardsman. And some of those deployments for you, Martha, is you did missions, let's call it afloat. I love that term. You did some missions afloat, sailing in the Pacific, and you were an executive officer. Now, at that time, you were the only woman aboard a 110-foot patrol boat in the Atlantic, the Caribbean, the Pacific Ocean. How did you see yourself prior to that deployment and how did that alter once you were on board and at sea? Did your identity change from being on land to being on sea in that situation? Yes, yes. So, so interesting um, that you're picking up on some of that, that when I graduated from our training academy, it's a military service academy it's called the Coast Guard Academy. Um, when I graduated, all of us were required to go to sea. And it was for good reason, because that's, again, what our bread and butter is, missions dating back to Alexander Hamilton, who founded the Revenue Cutter Service, which later became the Coast Guard. Um, That's part of our history and our legacy is working at sea. So leaving the academy, I thought I knew so much. I had spent four years. I had been schooled in navigation some of the laws and treaties that we would be enforcing as a boarding officer. And the funny thing was I didn't think at all about being a woman going to a ship and being the first woman in the history of that cutter. And my first cutter was actually a larger cutter in the Pacific, and Annie, my roommate, and I were the first women. And coming on board that boat, you know, we had a little bit of an ego, I guess, that hey, we just graduated from the academy. We are hot stuff. And just like our male classmates, you know, we thought we were ready to rock and roll. And we come to find out that a lot of the things that we didn't learn at the academy, we were going to need to learn pretty quickly, serving with some salty people um, afloat. And it was a quite different environment. And it was not necessarily a welcomed environment to have a female join a group of 65, 70 men at sea for weeks at a time um, because they felt, A, we were bad luck. You know, there was this um, mythical (laughs) aura about women at sea. The uh, tradition would say women were bad luck to be on a boat. (laughs) So we had, yes, so we had to battle some of that. Obviously, it's not true. And what else? Uh, being the only women, the wives were very upset that two women would be going to sea with their um, husbands, boyfriends, whatever. And 
But suffice it to say, we were very professional. We were there to do a job just like anyone else. And we didn't look at ourselves as being different. We looked at ourselves as being officers in the United States Coast Guard. We went through some grueling training to earn our spot. And we were going to continue to earn our position on this ship by qualifying and meeting all the requirements, just like our male counterparts. And that's what we did. Let's go back to your, you step on board the cutter. See, I've already got the terminology, Robbo, a float, cutter. I've already, I've got this nailed. So, uh, <laughs> what, you actually did some research for once. Is that what you're saying, Gary? I did, Captain Stubing, and thank you for asking. Um, you, you step on board the vessel and you suddenly realise you've come out of the academy and you go, wow, this is it. We're pushing off. We are now heading out to sea. All those things you just talked about are going through your mind and suddenly you're in it and those salty guys are moving around you, pushing past you. You've got responsibility. You go to your bunk for your first night a sea and tell me about the, 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 the voice that went through your mind and how you, what was the default voice that was you're having to process in your mind when it was all reality and you had to do a check to say, okay, how am I going to deal with this? What was the language in your own mind and how did you have to course correct? The language in my own mind was immediately recognizing that I didn't know a lot of things and I hadn't been taught them. That's why I didn't know them. And to this day, I credit um, one of the chiefs who served on the bridge with me. He was chief quartermaster, and I invited him to my retirement. And um, not that we've kept close over 30 years, but it's just that bond that you form with your team of supporters, people that believe in you. So it was a matter of being more humble, recognizing I didn't know a lot about a lot, and that I needed to get there. I needed to learn that. And I had, thankfully, the support of quite a few um, supporters and people that believed in me and who would guide me, not because I was a woman, but because I was an officer, a junior officer, who had a long career ahead of her if I chose to. And I did, obviously, through different ways. Um, and just set out to work hard, be persistent, believe in myself. Marthy, do you think humility in your mind, having been a captain, served as an officer, served with and I suspect for a lot of great leaders for a long distinguished career, the reason I ask the question is because we had, I know as a friend of yours, Jason Redman, who is a Navy SEAL who was badly wounded in combat in Afghanistan and now is a speaker and wrote a fabulous book. And it's interesting that I can hear a lot of what he went through in the Navy SEALs with what you had to go through in terms of coming out of the academy and he was really cocky. He got, he got really pushed back a few steps to have to and he said it was the hardest, but not even being wounded, but actually having to fail as a leader and then recreate himself. 
the thing he talks about a lot is humility. And I'm just curious, I, I can hear a similar sort of story through what you're saying is that coming out of the academy, stepping on board and having to take a step back and the chief quartermaster helping you through that process, do you think humility is a really critical asset today as a leader? I do, I, I do, because by being humble in the sense of recognizing that there are probably some really smart people around you and you want to cultivate that. You want to cultivate a team of supporters. And I don't know that many people would want to be on a team that the boss was arrogant, didn't listen to um, input from the other teams and didn't want to collaborate. And, um, you know, we all have egos. We all feel that we are good at certain things. Um, and even throughout my career, not just my first tour, I think leadership changes based on the people that you're working with, the situation that you're in, and how do you cultivate that team that's cohesive, that can, you know, turn on, spin on a dime, if you will, and go after this mission that's not easy. You know, everybody's tired, you're away from home, the food may not be good, you're not able to work out necessarily because... To run on the flight deck while the ship is, you know, the bow is going up and down and you're trying to go around in a circle, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I, I probably got way off track of your question, but I think the main point is that leadership for us, for me, has changed as I have grown. And I don't think it stops. I'm still learning things. I'm still comparing my style to others, I'm still recognizing the value that I see in others and trying to say, you know, can I, can I take some of that and make it my own and be authentic? I think that's the most important thing for a man or a woman is not try to model your behavior, your leadership, your, your style after someone that is, you know, maybe super amazing um, but to be true to yourself and be true to your style, even if people don't like it, you know, like I, this might be kind of goofy to mention on your show, but it's a subtle thing. But, you know, I like to wear lipstick. Not many women in the Coast Guard want to wear lipstick. And it's not saying anything about me. It's just that I like to look feminine. And some women think if you look feminine, um, that you're maybe not as professional as because we're the minority. You know, we're still, if you think about it, 15% of the United States active duty forces are women. 15%. That has inched, not even inched up in the last three decades. So just walking into a room and being the only woman makes a statement. Walking into the room and being a feminine woman makes a statement and hopefully you can back it up with your professionalism, your qualifications, your smarts, and your hard work ethic and your ability to lead um, and recognize the different types of people that you're with and, and what would motivate them and get to know them. You know, it's funny you should mention that because just as I was dialing you to do this interview, <laughs> Gary was actually fussing with his lipstick. He couldn't quite make he up was? his mind. With, 
He was fussing oh with his God. lipstick. And I want to yeah. tell you guys, I actually put on makeup today. I have lipstick on. I styled my hair, <laughs> and you can't even see me. Yeah, no, I, I look really, Gary, really good. Gary, Gary hasn't you don't quite. See us. Gary hasn't quite grasped the difference between vodcast and podcast, but you know, he'll get there. <laughs> I wish I could see what you guys look like. No, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> Negative. Negatory, good buddy. Negatory. No, 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 no. Gar- Negatory. Gar- Gary's rouge is uh, a bit all over the place yeah. this morning. <laughs> <laughs> It's super early um, for you, right? You just you just uh, started oh, the day. No. Nah, it's fine. We we're, we're good to go. Martha, tell me something. Even even hearing you talk about the bow going up and down, trying to run around the deck, water splashing up. Even even hearing that, I feel seasick. Was it always <laughs> your dream to be at sea? Was it always your dream for as long as you can remember to be afloat? Never, never. Not at all. In fact, I was a fish out of water. (laughs) Here's the deal. My father looked at me. I was the only girl with three brothers. And he said, and he knew I wanted to go to college right after high school. He says, but you're going to have to pay for your own college, and you're going to need to find a way to do that. And why don't you consider the military service academies? And I was like, aye, aye, Dad. Um, and, (laughs) (laughs) and my dad was a World War II vet, but it wasn't until towards the end of his life, I asked him, I said, dad, why on earth did you encourage me to join the military? And then we narrowed it down and the Coast Guard was the best fit for me because I wanted to save lives and because I wanted to make a difference. And it's a story behind that story. But his answer was, because I thought you'd enjoy the adventure. And he was right. And if he hadn't directed me in that manner, I would never have joined the service. And look at what I have been able to do and how it has strengthened me um, to believe in doing more than I ever thought I could do. I have been in so many different situations and environments and done some fabulous things. I've cried many a times, you know, because sometimes it's really hard and challenging. And, um, but you know what? I, I've done it. And, um, no, I didn't want to be seasick. And, and yes, I did get seasick. And my captain on the patrol boat, they rock and roll differently. So the bigger ships roll forward and back, you know, based on the sea state, you, you can anticipate the bow is going to go up and down, right? But the patrol boat, some brilliant engineer thought they would put fin stabilizers that poke out on the sides and those fin stabilizers, I don't know what they were stabilizing, but so normally you expect a rock up and down. Well, this would just make it kind of jigger left and right and up and Mm. down. And my stomach's going in the same direction. I look over at my CO and he's like chowing down on a, on a burnt hamburger. And I'm like, (laughs) I need, I need a Sprite and some crackers and I'm going to lay down. (laughs) That is funny. Yeah. One thing I really admire about people like yourself, Martha, is that you had a 29-year career, distinguished career in the U.S. Coast Guard. Then you left and you needed a challenge, so you went to Harvard, and you've got a Harvard Master's in Journalism. Now, you said that you figured you need to validate your writing because you wanted to write, you figured okay, I need to validate my writing, so I'll go to Harvard and get a master's in journalism, which you've got. 
Have you always felt that there are there's a need within you as part of your character to get that validation? Is that a is that something that you think back through and go, I've I've sought validation in my careers? Um, in the case of um, writing and and pursuing another career as a journalist, um, yes, I I wanted to be self validate because it was probably more of a matter of circumstances that I was a public affairs officer for the Coast Guard and a spokesperson. And I climbed the ladder in that world as well to be asked by the commandant of the Coast Guard to serve as his press secretary. And I worked side by side with um, officials from the White House, from departments, interagencies. So I definitely had done probably most of what anyone would ever dream of doing for the Coast Guard. But then I never got the the pick, the nod to go to public affairs or journalism school to get my master's. And I needed to get a master to be promoted to captain, to senior officer. And the funny thing is um, one of my a cadre, so he was two years ahead of me, and they would always, you know, the cadre were the people that would drop you for push-ups. You know, you did something wrong, hit the deck, give me 20 push-ups. So this cadre person was also interested in public affairs, and he applied for his master's the same time I did. And he got picked up, and I was the alternate. And I actually called him. I'm like, hey, John, you know I want this more than you do. Why don't you just say no, and you can go do something else? But he wouldn't have anything to do with it. So because I was not able to get that selection in the military as, as a Coast Guard officer, I had other smaller trainings, but not something like that. And they gave me the job without that, which was kind of ironic. Um, yes, I felt that I want to prove not only to myself, but also have that as my degree, my higher level degree, because I need to get a master's anyway. And quite honestly, um, the other factor probably was, it was what I liked to do. I had a great time telling stories and being a spokesperson. And then the Coast Guard kept wanting me to go back to sea after my two sea tours and kept wanting me to drive down a different career path and it probably would have gotten me, you know, other things, other opportunities, but I stuck with what I knew was true to me and to my being and wanted to pursue that. So, yes, in the end, um, it was what I felt I was missing, and it was my bigger dream. And once I realized that was my bigger dream and I had articulated it, I said, I need to do this um, because Otherwise, I had probably failed myself in that manner. You mentioned the White House. What's it like to go to the White House? I mean, we we know that there are many members of the White House who listen to our show. The uh, the Obamas, Brack, Brack, and Michelle, both uh, big big fans of the show. Um, what's it like to go to the White House? Well, um, I was not one of those like the commandant that would go to the White House and the briefings on a regular basis. I had been there a couple times as a visitor, and I really enjoyed that they would give out boxes of peanuts, uh, M&Ms, I mean, M&Ms in presidential boxes. They were really cool. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> 
it was quite phenomenal to see the rich history and be in that environment. Um, but it was very challenging on the working side because obviously there's a political agenda um, and a political story that political type people want to tell. Whereas being in the Coast Guard, um, we do have to say aye aye to the commander in chief. But at the same time, we're telling a story that's more based on facts and mission. So there was, it was interesting to see how things played out. When you think back through those many, many decades in the Coast Guard, tell me about the most harrowing situation you found yourself in where you, you really had to call upon your own personal resilience and grit to get through it. Oh, gosh. Um, I've never been asked that question before. Um, there are many different um, times that I had to call upon my own inner strength and resilience, and they're so diverse, the circumstances. Um, um, one thing that just pops to mind now may not be exactly what you um, thought. I could probably give you another sea story, but the story that pops to my mind was when I was... Um, still on active duty and became a single mom of a four-year-old and had a um, very long commute to do a very public figure type job as a spokesperson based in Seattle and, um, and just try to navigate all of that. And then one morning, actually it does connect it to a sea story, if you will, at about four o'clock in the morning, I got a call that one of the regional network television stations wanted to do an interview because as a public affairs officer, I was the right person that they should ask. And I was just getting the story as it was breaking and somehow they had picked it up. And the story was we had lost one of our motor lifeboats that had launched on a rescue out of Quillute River, which is the northwest corner of the United States in Washington state and we were launching a massive search for our own. And, um, so that story started, you know, the early morning hours and evolved into, um, a really incredible and very sad case where three of the four men on board that boat, um, had been jettisoned because of the boat was designed to roll over and was in a situation where it did roll three times. And their life rings, or the uh, D-ring that was attached to their strap, that was attached to their waist, and they had helmets on, all of that protection gear, gave way with the stress of the rollover. And, of course, we didn't know that within the first 24, 48 hours. Um, So it was so tragic to know that we had lost some of our own and then when we found the single survivor, um, and then we also, the aviation side did rescue the two people on the sailboat, which were the reason that they went out in this horrendous circumstance. Um, they were, they were survived as well, but finding the single survivor gave us all you know, a moment to rejoice. But at the same time, we launched back into the feeling of great loss because we are such a small service. We all feel it. And so for me, it was, um, you know, just a very 
tedious four years of serving in that job, having cases like this one break within an instant, and then um, feeling such challenge of being a single and trying to continue to be that, you know, stellar Coast Guard officer, always ready, you know, I can do it all kind of thing. Is that kind of the, the the backbones to your the keynote speech you give, Martha, where you talk about the fact that you've got to have these grand dreams in our mind, but at the same time be able to balance life's demands on or off the water? Is that kind of the, the basis of what you talk about? Yes. I um, And I like how you word it. I like grand dream. I, I wrote that down. Maybe I can borrow that. <laughs> 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 Feel free. I um, I do have come up with a presentation that I think many people can relate to, no matter their age or phase of life, and it's something that can continue to evolve as we evolve. And to have a bigger dream, it takes a little thought of what is it that you've always wanted to do, but you haven't achieved it yet. And it's hard maybe to identify that, but once you do, how are you going to get there? So that's the the basis of the topic. And the reason why I want people to think about a grand dream or a bigger dream is because similar to me, when my father said, look, you're going to have to pay for your college and why don't you think about going into the military because then the academy would be essentially a free education, you know, a very good one. And then I wouldn't have to worry about funding it. So that was a dream. I did that, but it wasn't a grand dream. And if we can, at any age, and hopefully when we're younger, I wish I knew this, imagine what we could have become. And maybe you have a situation that you could talk about where, hey, if I knew at 20 that I wanted to go for this grand dream, then I would set in place those mechanisms. And I have four tips to help people, you know, understand how to do it long before, you know, whatever age you are now. And imagine what opportunities you would have had and what things you would have done. I'm not saying you haven't achieved a lot and and I'm not saying I haven't achieved a lot, but I feel that, you know, now that I know about a bigger dream and I can share that, I think people will will go further. You'll, You'll find your inner strength. There would be fears that hold us back, and anybody, all of us, I'm sure, Martha. And when you think back through your career to date, what was the greatest fear you had to face up to? And what was the process you went through in your own mind with your own mindset to face that fear and overcome it? Well, okay, here's one example. I, as a deck watch officer on both of my ships, Um, and as an officer, I needed to get qualified as a boarding officer. And so I went through the boarding school. I learned how to do some, you know, personal defense. I learned how to fire a gun. And I love firing a gun, by the way. Um, (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. But I was absolutely terrified of leaving my Coast Guard cutter, getting on the small boat, and boarding another vessel and having to be on the deck of that vessel that I've never been on before with people I've never met. And we're out on the high sea. You know, we're not next to a grocery store or a 7-Eleven. You can't call 911. 
<laughs> and, and what I found was, particularly on the patrol boat, was that there were, goes back to your team of supporters, that I was the person that was in charge of, you know, going through the paperwork, being the, the command presence, and they were the ones, my team, that would stand watch with me. They would go about the ship. They would inspect. And all I had to do was trust that they had my back and they knew I had theirs. But the fear of what if I had to use my weapon against a person? What if someone charged at me and I'm not, you know, a very big person and no one being a woman, you know, would they immediately assume that I'm not strong enough to battle someone at sea and on deck of their vessel? You know, all those kinds of things were quite terrifying. And I recognized that my team, who I had gotten to know, who believed in me and I believed in them, and we all had training, but some were better at it than others, and I certainly was not very good at this, um, would back each other up and we would be successful. And we never had an incident, thank goodness. Um, and we did hold down our, you know, our position. We took charge when we were on board these vessels. We accomplished the mission. And, um, so it was because of the others that were with me on the mission, on my boarding team, that I was successful. That's a good example of leadership in itself, Martha. How, how has your ideology of leadership changed during your time in the military? I have a, um... During my last assignment where I was a senior reserve officer, so I had transitioned to the reserves after 10 years on active duty. And um, as a reserve officer, it was more of um, higher-level executive management. And so from this perspective, I was able to see, and I kept an open-door policy where I could talk with people that um, were junior that we're dealing with other types of issues, not management issues. And I recognize that I had been in that place where they are, you know, when like when I was a single parent and I worried about how am I going to have enough money to do X? How am I going to be home in time to pick up my child from daycare? I had, I could relate to some of the things that they were worried about. And then as a manager, I would try to infuse in them and inspiring them to see beyond. So my, my three things were believe beyond. Believe beyond the day-to-day, the frustrations you may have with your boss or with the lack of funding for something that's critical. Try to believe beyond that and, and work hard at what you've been asked to do so that your team will be successful. And then critical, too, is especially as a leader of any position, is to lead beyond. And I truly believe we need to be looking out for the next generation, that generation that's following us. How are we cultivating them to be successful? How are we advocating and mentoring uh, and giving them insights so that they can follow in our footsteps, if you will, and go beyond? And then the last one is, so it's believe beyond, lead beyond, and then dream beyond. And that would be part of the, you know, the bigger dream. Where do you want to be? And through all of those, have fun. If you're not having fun, 
and maybe need to look at, well, why is that? And where would you be having fun? Because fun is addictive, right? It's like this really cool place to be if everybody's having a good time when it's appropriate, obviously. Like who wouldn't want to have fun? The two of you are having a blast doing this, the Mojo show, right? (laughs) Is that what you call it? Is that not what you call it? I thought it, yeah. that's the name of it. Yeah, that's it. No, I meant having a blast. <laughs> oh, having a blast. Yes. Are you not having a blast talking to me? Always, Always have a blast. Always. Absolutely. <laughs> Martha, there, there would be a fork in the road that everybody comes to in their life and there's normally that fork where somebody makes a profound choice to go left or right. And when they take that left fork or that right fork, it leads them to to the person they are today. Do you remember a time where you made a profound choice that has led to you being the person you are today? Uh, Yes, yes. Um, And probably uh, I think there could be little choices and then there can be significant choices. And I think you're talking about the significant choice. And the significant choice for me was at the 10-year mark. I had served on two ships. I'd been very successful officer. I was climbing the ladder of promotions. And being a single parent, I had to make a choice. Do I continue in the Coast Guard or do I transition and leave? Become a part-time uh, officer, being in the reserves, working part-time, or do I leave the protection, the security of this this job that I've known since I was a teenager, and go out into the big scary world? And and what were my reasons for doing so? And I chose, as you said, I chose that turn away and into the big scary world as a single parent. Um, primarily because I wanted to be with my son and I didn't want to lose what was going to be a custody battle. And it was kind of like fighting for my son and fighting for me. And again, I felt vulnerable because I was now single and what would the court say? You know, she's single, she's working in the Coast Guard. How can she provide a good home environment? Those kinds of things were all threatening to me um, to be um, wondering what someone else would decide for me in in a court legal situation. So in the end, I had to choose um, my son over my career in that sense. And at the same time, I love the Coast Guard. I didn't want to leave the Coast Guard. It's become a part of who I am. And thankfully, I had the opportunity to be a reserve officer and continue to do what I love to do and have fun. Um, And I did. And I ended up, believe it or not, this single gal moved into Manhattan, you know, the the most amazing city, uh, can I say, in the world, even though I'm sure Australia has amazing cities that I want to see. <laughs> That'd be Bruce. <laughs> Manhattan as a single parent and got a job working in Madison Avenue in public relations for IBM. And, you know, I lived paycheck to paycheck uh, and had a great time and had my son with me for, uh, you know, as much as possible where we shared the relationship with my ex. And, 
yeah, it was a major life change. Uh, it weakened me to my knees, you know, when, when things got tough, but I did it and it forever changed the trajectory of my life to be where I am today. And I'm very happy for having made that choice. During that journey, Martha, do you journal? Are you a person who, because you've been through a lot, you've got a lot of stories, that was a very profound answer that you just gave. Through those periods, your periods afloat, do you do you journal, write your thoughts down somewhere? You know, that would have been a brilliant thing to do. I wish I had. <laughs> I think I, you know, especially at sea and laying in my little bunk, you know, it's a very small little bed and you close the stateroom yeah. door and you're just... And most of the time I felt seasick. Um, oh my gosh. I don't, I don't think I could even find a piece of paper. I'd be so exhausted and just want to go to sleep when I had a chance. Um, or, you know, I'm not saying I was seasick every day, but <laughs> it was a big part of the Probably. experience. <laughs> what we're going to do now here, and today we've turned the big red bus that we call the Mojo Radio Show into the big red cutter. And oh. I'm going <laughs> to hand you over to... Captain Stubing, who is going to take you through. <laughs> ah, Captain Stubing. Uh, I am the captain now. And you tell me um, I clutch at straws sometimes. Jeez, I don't know. All, all I can I think of, Martha, when you were telling your story, all I could think about was Tom Hanks and that really <laughs> scary guy. I am the captain now. <laughs> um, so, Captain Stubing, would you like to do a Captain Stubing's <laughs> nifty Let's 90? Let's do a Captain Stubing's <laughs> nifty 90, shall we? Robbo's Nifty 90. Can I put the captain in a timeout at any point? No. You can call a friend, though, if you like. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right, so you set for this? I'm ready, yep. All right, let's start the clock. What's your favourite colour? Red. Something that annoys you the most? People that leave dishes in the sink. What's Dirty your... dishes. Dirty dishes. What's your... Gary, you're in trouble. What's your favourite sports team or sports star? New Orleans Saints. Why is that? Because I was born in New Orleans, and I think they are so resilient and so awesome, and they should have been in the Super Bowl this year. Finish this sentence. Something I never get tired of is... Sailing on, on the ocean. What are three words you think your team would use to describe you? Optimistic, fun, smart. What's the last movie you went to see at the theatre? On the basis of sex. What's your favourite place to read a book? Oh, I have this little chair. It's um, It can seat like two people, so my golden retriever... Her name is Mae West and I. We pop in there together. She gets she takes more room than I do. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you read a book, right? Um, this is another right. big another big question here. What's your favourite pizza topping? If I had to pick one, probably basil. <laughs> nice. And the last question, but the biggest one. Uh, you're at sea. You wake up in the morning. The boat's rocking. Last night's dinner's still jumping around in your tummy. Things just aren't going real well this morning. What's the uh, before you jump out of your bunk? What's the song you put on in your headphones to get yourself motivated to um, to get the day started? Oh, <laughs> probably anything but you two. Oh, what a fabulous okay. Okay. You I and Gary, it. you and Gary will have a lot to talk about should we ever meet up.
So, Martha, you have survived the nifty 90 minutes. Um, yeah. <laughs> we are very respectful of your time today. So just one final thing. You have done a lot, and what I, I really love about you is you've got a distinguished career with the Coast Guard. You've been to Harvard to get your Master's in Journalism. You seem to get be a restless person who's saying, what's, what's next on my portfolio of stuff to do? What's your next goal that you've got in mind to, to make yourself uncomfortable, to move into discomfort, to something to learn or do? What's next for you? What's next for me is um, trying to land a speaking engagement uh, for a bigger venue. And I, I get nervous no matter what the size of the stage, but I really want to inspire um, more people with my message and my stories and hoping to make a difference in their lives. So that's something I started as a, you know, as a teen by joining the Coast Guard because I realized life is fragile and life is short and everyone has a purpose. And if I can uh, show people that they there's a reason why they're here and that they can, despite whatever odds or challenges they face, their fears, maybe they don't want to take a risk, that they can get to where they want to be and they can have fun. So my goal is to also go to Australia. Believe it or not, I was trying to get there over the last month. Um, we were planning a trip you know, months ago for last month, and that fell through. So maybe I can, can do this big speaking gig in Australia. If not, I'll be happy to do it somewhere else and continue to hopefully make a difference in the lives of others because in the end, doesn't matter if we're male or female, we're all human beings and we all have a purpose and we've been given the gift of life. So for people to follow you up, Martha, to get more about your the books you've mentioned, the work you do, see you in action, where where is the hub? Where do you where's the best place to send people for you? Um, my website, MarthaCotite.com. So it's Martha M A R T H A Cotite K O T I T E dot com. And books, speaking engagements. In fact, you do a lot of writing too. And there's a lot of writing, a lot of articles on there that you've written. So that's the best hub for everything? Yes, that's the best hub. And, and I love writing. So if someone's got a story, they want to hire me to write. Um, I do freelance. I'd love mm. to travel to write as well. Um, you know, I'm very passionate about learning. Um, there's a lot to learn still and <laughs> discover in this grand, beautiful world that we live in. Well, it has been a real privilege having you on. I know you're part of the Eagle Rise Speakers team uh, who've become good mates. We've got many great mates through Erica and Jay and Ray Cash Care and David Coaster and Greg and it's just you're in amongst the most fantastic stable. Ryan Munsey's become a great mate of our show. It's just a great stable of people there. Eric is wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real privilege. I love hearing you tell stories. I'm still feeling slightly seasick, but um, <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as the studio stops rocking <laughs> on the big red cutter, we call the Mojo Radio Show. But thank you, Martha. It's been a real treat. Thank you both so much. Um, it's such a delight. I enjoyed every minute and I'm honoured that, that you invited me and included me in your show. And, and thank you for what you do. Um, what a wonderful uh, show that you have, and uh, I'm glad to see that you're able to bring in 
folks to inspire and motivate. And I applaud you and salute you. Here's a salute from the captain and the Coast Guard. Oh, oh come hi. on. There it is. There's one for the show. I the captain. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. To finish the show off, I've got a letter. Have you checked your email this morning, Mulder? No, why? Because I received something unsettling and I wondered if you'd gotten it too. The Mojo Mailbag. This is a letter that Peter sent to me during the week and this is a cracking lesson that we can use in our own business life or our social life or Robbo could use at the footy club about how you look at strategy. And Peter wrote that he had been listening to the Charlene Nemeth interview, which was about two months ago. Charlene wrote a book about dissent and the book is about dissension in a world that just wants to get along. It was an amazing, amazing show. I loved it. And so Peter was talking to his son, Patrick, and listening to the show together. Patrick then went to school and spoke to his history teacher at his school about the ideas that were in the Charlene Nemeth episode. And what happened then is his school teacher told him about a thing called the 10th man. Now, the 10th man is something that the Israeli Defense Force used. And there's a little clip that I'm going to play you in, in a second. But if what happens in the Israeli Defense Force, if any decision-making process is supported unanimously, then one person is nominated as the 10th man and they have to then argue against the majority. Now, this history teacher said it came about when the Israelis got caught by surprise in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And there were signs that the Arabs' armies were moving, but the government and the senior military figures all agreed that it was nothing. Now, partly because no one wanted to speak up and no one wanted to mobilise the troops on the Yom Kippur holiday. After that, the military mandated a dissenter to argue against the majority if ever there was unanimous agreement. Now, I think that is an absolute piece of gold because too often when you're facilitating a business strategy session, decisions are made, you're going, is everybody happy or is it nods their heads? Because a lot of people are scared to speak up. I think allocating a 10th man who is empowered and encouraged and it's your job to do it with the right feelings in mind, to dissent, to say, yeah, but what if? And the SEALs have the same thing called forming a red team. So thanks to Peter for sending it through and his son, Patrick. I just think it's absolute gold. And that is a piece that I'll be talking to corporate groups and any any group about to say, if everybody goes, yeah, we're into it, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. Well, then <laughs> if there's unanimous agreement, then someone has to be the dissenter and they're empowered. You're the now 10th man, pull it apart. I think it's gold. Mate, isn't it funny? Because I, I, I sort of listened to that episode and I've probably um, opened up a bit more around the committee table at the kids' rugby club. And, and you sort of get to that point of the night where everyone goes, you know, oh, well, what do we think then? Let's sort of sum this up. And, it, and it's, I notice it's usually me that now is the dissenter. And you sort of you start to see people roll their eyes and stuff and you think, but, you know, you've got to be open to another opinion. You can't just close the door and go, okay, well, we're right. Everybody else is wrong. Let's not look at this from another perspective. I think, I think you're absolutely Well, it right. is it is that, but it could be no one wants to speak up. Yeah. And what Charlene Nemeth wrote about in her book is the other side of things is what you normally hear is if you decide to do that, you take on the devil's advocate's position. Mm. Mm. 
But the devil's advocate is not a strong position because you don't really believe it because you are taking on the role saying, well, someone should really do this. I don't really believe it, but I'll be the devil's advocate. Mm. Whereas this position is you're the 10th man. And this is based on, this is a true story from the military and country comms. This is a true story. I think setting it up is really powerful to say you're now the 10th man. Pretend that the, the government had unanimous agreement and if you don't speak up and do the right thing, this is what can occur. Now, you're the 10th man. And everybody sits there and the 10th man then attacks the position of where you are. I think it has, because of the story that goes with it, the history of it, I think it has a lot more power than just being the guy who just thinks oh, I should I should try and disagree with this. And or, worst case, someone taking the devil's advocate position, which Charlene talks about, Professor Charlene talks about so well in her book. So um, so I, I think that's absolute gold. I'm Anna Devenna. I'm also known as the sleep muse. I help people get a great night's sleep. And often when people are struggling with sleep, I suggest that they listen to the Mojo radio show. And when they do, they fall asleep instantly. <laughs> okay, to take us out this week, it's been a big show. Lola, play something about the sea. Just a minute. Oh, Lola, really? <laughs> All right, Lola, play something about the sea. What about this? Close. Getting better, isn't it? Yeah. Still not right there, Lola. Lola, play something else about the sea. Creative. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lola. Last chance. Play something about the I don't know, sea, ocean, water, whatever. What about this? There you go. We're out.
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.